to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. on the recording that's the first I've switched part. to gallery view yeah hello everyone welcome to pot damn america i am jake flores that is alex patak what up uh very creative catchphrase this week alex thanks for i was looking something up come back <laughs> to me in five minutes i'll think of something better i will anders lee is here anders lee here what up that's a portmanteau of our two catchphrases. That's I, my catchphrase. Get your own catchphrase. <laughs> Fuck off, Anders. Stealing <laughs> it. Um, and we are joined by a former press secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign and host of a new podcast called Bad Faith Podcast, Bree Joy Gray. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jake and all. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. So um, I guess let's start off by talking a little bit about Bad Faith Podcast, the uh, the new uh, talk of the town of Twitter. Uh, <laughs> talk of Twitter town. Congratulations on your viral marketing campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's been a very interesting week. Uh, we thought that people would be interested in our interview with Noam Chomsky just because of the lofty position that he holds uh, in the esteem of many, many leftists. Um, I don't know that either of us really expected people to react quite so viscerally <laughs> to what ultimately was um, not an interview that was like so combative but in which I think he was confronted with some basic questions uh, that maybe he isn't often confronted with because most folks who are interested in seeking him out and interviewing him um, revere him to such an extent that they don't really push back that hard. I I'm not quite sure what it is because obviously I respect Chomsky as well, but I also um, have really deep-seated concerns about the long-term um, fate of a lot of discrete communities that are often not included in these kinds of conversations and whose political participation is taken for granted, namely my own as a black American. So um, it was really fascinating uh, to see how folks reacted to him just being asked, what do you think we should do about the fact that political capture means that these discrete groups aren't listened to and their votes are taken for granted? And then there was a colossal meltdown. So I encourage folks who haven't listened to go ahead and listen because I think how it's being represented on here <laughs> hashtag on here is very different than <laughs> yeah. uh, on our podcast <laughs> on on the twitters is very different than the conversation itself which i think is substantive and useful yeah i th i mean i thought that the uh the sort of sensationalized you know twitter interpretation of what happened is very funny but from a like a producer of a 
of a podcast point of view, I, you know, there's like a kayfabe aspect where on some level you're like, man, they're geniuses because like, you know, this is like when WTF came out and those first episodes that everyone started listening to where they were like fighting with Carlos Mencia or something. But, you know, obviously that's that's like theater and uh, pro wrestling or whatever. I mean, I thought that what happened when you guys interviewed Chomsky was that there was a pretty uneventful uh, conversation where you're allowed to disagree with a philosopher and ask them questions and like ask them to do, right. you know, clarify their points of view on things like it's kind of the whole point I thought. And um, then you were, you know, attacked online in bad faith. Hey, look at that. You know, like the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so part of it is, is Virgil's marketing genius. Um, he, you know, posted our promotional clip saying we won the argument, which to me seemed like to be a really obvious troll. <laughs> um, we had done another um, premium episode where we talked about the value of any individual vote. And Virgil and I had our own little debate about, you know, whether or not it, people who are in solidly red or solidly blue states should think of themselves as, you know, uh, you know, entitled to vote third party or does anyone's individual vote count? And and so in, in the course of that debate, Virgil started joking about he had won because the comments in our <laughs> Patreon were largely that I had won. <laughs> so this was just a continuation of him just de declaring victory in every context. And people just like lost their minds over the idea, I think, that anyone could ever best Noam Chomsky <laughs> in any context. Yeah. And of course, you have a whole, a whole slew of bad faith liberals who don't care at all about what Noam Chomsky thinks. 99 times out of 100, right. you know, 364 days out of the year. But when Noam Chomsky can berate leftists into um, voting blue no matter who, suddenly he becomes the most important person in America. And you specifically, because I feel like a lot of people have targets out for you. Um, I guess what surprises me the most is that so many people have such a, like, glowing fictional relationship with Noam Chomsky. Like, <laughs> well, I like fictional. Noam Chomsky, you can correspond but I don't... With him. I don't email. think he's my dad. I'm not going to get mad if you have a discussion with him. It's very strange to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird because during the campaign, um, I mean, there was there was all of this rhetoric about how um, so-called Bernie bros were like overly obsessed or adherent to whatever Bernie Sanders thought and that, you know, he was all of our daddies and, you know, I, I was accused of caping for a white man and all of this kind of stuff. And then the campaign ends and I have my own, you know, personal views that I'm now allowed to articulate because I'm separate and apart and hashtag no longer on the payroll. And people start be, be, be becoming very upset at that as well and say, oh, gosh, well, Bernie said this. Why don't you agree with Bernie? And it's a, the same thing with Noam Chomsky. You can respect someone um, and see where they're coming from and value their opinion and also have a right to your own independent point of view. And for some reason, that, that breaks brains, apparently. Um, so I, I think we kind of wanted to give you a chance to sort of like elucidate uh, the disagreement you were you were having with him, because I've heard you've been saying for a while that the left, uh, when it comes to voting, should think about leverage. And was that kind of the heart of your argument here? I mean, I did listen to the, the interview. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. But is that kind of the point you're maintaining that um, in an organized way or in an individual way? Uh, people on the left when we're voting should um, sort of leverage our vote or, or condition our vote or was that was that basically what you were saying? 
Yeah, I think it's a pretty unremarkable proposition that one's vote should be lent in exchange for something. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of folks, getting Trump out of office is a sufficient exchange. And I respect that point of view because Donald Trump does present some very real and unprecedented um, risks to a lot of folks, including some particularly vulnerable constituencies in this country. And I don't, for a second, diminish that reality. At the same time, what I wanted to do is have a broader conversation than the one about 2020 and what happens three weeks from now. I want to have a broader conversation about the fact that vote blue no matter whoism, which Black people have always been confined to, right? There's, there's, this, there's this weird reality that a lot of like hashtag resistance liberals are feeling like their vote is constrained and okay, maybe I don't like Biden, but you got to just do it this time because Trump is so bad and Trump is so racist. Well, black Americans who has been voting Democrat in 90 plus percent numbers since realignment have been feeling this way about Republican candidates for our entire lives. And they, we have been voting blue no matter who are for, for multiple generations. And I think you can see very clearly what that results when you what was the results in when you're your votes are it's here everything's great <laughs> right there's no there's no effort to um get your vote right it's it's called political capture um and it means that you don't have very much political power so there were a lot of folks during the course of the primary uh what or rather after the primary once joe biden had one that said okay our demands are you know these kind of elite msnbc types our demands are you have a black woman VP. And that was considered to be okay, like an okay demand to me. But the second people started making demands like, I want you to um, you know, abolish the police, or defund the police, or I want you to support Medicare for all in the middle of a global pandemic where black people are being disproportionately hurt by it, or we, we want you to legalize marijuana something that is enormously popular with majorities of Americans, including majorities of Republicans, suddenly that became beyond the pale. And it became really clear that while the Democratic Party is willing to say and do symbolic things to secure the black vote and continue to demonstrate that it is less superficially racist than Republicans at the end of the day, it's not willing to um, meaningfully meet our policy demands. And that's a lot of what's happening right now with this Ice Cube business. Right. Well, Ice Cube, he doesn't like Donald Trump. He knows that Donald Trump is racist. He said a million times, but he put out a, a, a list of asks for black Americans and Donald Trump is willing to at least pander superficially and unmeaningfully, but pander and with the Democratic Party isn't even willing to pretend. And I think that's something that's worth talking about. What are the long term consequences of blue, blue no matter who for various communities, especially historically disadvantaged communities, including working class people of all stripes? And the fact that bringing that up causes this kind of a meltdown, I think, really speaks volumes about how we are supposed to play a certain kind of role in society. And when we step outside of that and make any basic demands that are fundamental, existential fundamental survival demands in the middle of a crisis like we're living in that is unprecedented, we are treated as the enemy and basically akin to being a Trump supporter. Do you think, though, that the Sunrise Movement was able to use uh, their leverage in with the task forces to, I mean, whether or not Biden follows through on these things is, I think, a totally separate question. But okay. at least he, on paper, is now willing to say that he wants 100 percent clean electricity by 2035. He's going to invest in green jobs. Um, is that, I guess, from your perspective, uh, as uh, trying to extract concessions from him, was that not sufficient? Or is it just 
which is just the case that we should keep pushing um, no matter what um, and not be satisfied and that will push him in the right direction. If I'm recalling the numbers correctly, Joe Biden ran on a $1.7 trillion climate plan over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the Sunrise Movement meaningfully got him to $2 trillion plan over four years. Um, Bernie Sanders' climate plan was $16 trillion. And it had line items, including things like, I think, $400 billion to help um, uh, the global South meet climate goals, right? Understanding that this is a global phenomenon um, that is going to require, you know, multi-billion dollar jobs effort and all of these kinds of things. It's a Green New Deal and jobs plan, right? Um, There's a gap there. Bernie Sanders wasn't just throwing money at the problem unmeaningfully. Mm -hmm. That price tag was set because the best climate scientists and activists in the world weighed in, and that was what was determined to be the case. And when we interviewed Naomi Klein, um, who is perhaps the most prominent climate journalist we have, um, about the respective climate plans during the uh, of all of the candidates during the primary, and she said, you know, I've never really endorsed a candidate before. I'm endorsing Bernie Sanders because this is the first time I've ever seen anybody meaningfully um, meet the challenge that's before us. That meant something. Um, and so we're planning to do a climate e- uh, episode where we bring both climate scientists and journalists together to really talk about whether or not Joe Biden's plan, even if th- he has made meaningful concessions, is enough to get us to the, um, you know, to avoid the, the, the cut points at which there are precipitous drop-offs for um, our climate, right? It's not a linear, climate, climate change is not a linear proposition. If we hit these, degree marks, you will have um, cascading effects. And the whole point is to prevent us from getting to these these um, temperature degree raises. And I think, look, I just I just finished reading this article by Kate Aronoff, um, who's at the New Republic now, a climate journalist. Mm-hmm. And she's writing about how Jeff Bezos very loudly lauds these climate efforts at the same time he's giving money to um, Republican candidates who oppo- oppose climate change reform, mm. right? And so I think that we should be, we have to keep pressure on and remain very skeptical of politicians who are willing to articulate a broad principle like I believe in science and then turn around and say we absolutely aren't going to ban fracking because of um, financial incentives, right? So, you know, I, I don't want to undermine the work of the of the Sunshine Movement, Sunrise Movement. I think that they made meaningful concessions. But I also think that Joe Biden knows that one of the biggest bully pulpits he has to get people to vote for him is that the climate is such an important issue um, to so many people. And so he needed their buy-in, which meant that they had a great deal of leverage. And it's curious to me um, why we landed where we did. Um, And I think it's instructive to other groups that need that same kind of buy-in to really understand their power. You know, Joe Biden wouldn't be able to go around right now saying you have to vote for me because the climate depends on it. Noam Chomsky wouldn't be able to beat that drum if there hadn't been this kind of um, collective decision to pretend that, you know, Joe Biden is believes 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 in science when he's obviously taking stands on all kinds of environmental issues that suggest that he can believe in it, but doesn't mean he's going to act on it. 
Yeah. Right. He's also, uh, he's very old, so he doesn't need to believe in it. It literally, you literally need the people that are threatened by this problem to have some sort of lever of power in, into the, you know, the presidency or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, and that's one of the things I really uh, wanted Chomsky to address because, um, I mean, and climate was really central to the discussion in many ways. But, um, you know, when we talk about Biden being better on climate change than Trump, that's true in some ways. But the question is, what are the long term, as you're saying, uh, implications of, of doing, you know, another sort of centrist Democrat in the White House who has, albeit better plans than we've seen before. But if it's not sufficient, then it's too late. It's going to be too late if we're not serious about getting off of carbon by 2030. And I think there, I mean, my position about the election is, I think on balance, it's, I guess it's better if Biden wins, but there are pros and cons to both options. And the, the main con I see to a Biden administration is a progressive um, who wants to get off carbon by 2030, it, 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 that's off the table, you know, because in 2024, either Biden's going to run again or uh, he'll step down and, and Kamala Harris will be the incumbent. Um, and that is an insurmountable task for a, for a primary. That's just, it's very unlikely that we're going to win that. So is it better in the long term to have some inadequate policies that maybe somebody could pick up and and actually um, move on more substantially and like 2028, 20, 2032? Or is it better to just bite the bullet for another four years and, and actually uh, try to start over in, in 2024 and have someone who's actually serious about getting a, a soft carbon? Maybe by then it's too late. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I think we just need to be real about the, the pros and cons for both options because if Biden wins, the center will be emboldened. The, they'll, if he wins by a lot, they're going to say, we didn't need the left, you know, and they're going to be a lot less likely to actually listen to, to our demands. So, yeah, well, I think I, it's... Yeah. I think that either way, they're going to say they don't need the left. If they win, mm-hmm. they are going to say that we did, they didn't need the left because they won without it, even though in all likelihood, the overwhelming majority of progressives will vote for Biden just like they did in 2016, right? In 2016, Bernie supporters voted for Hillary Clinton at a higher rate than Hillary Clinton supporters supported Barack Obama in 2008, by some measures at twice the rate, right? There was, Hillary had twice the rate of defections. Hillary supporters did not want to vote for our first black president and instead voted for John McCain and Sarah Palin. Um, and if we if they lose, they will blame the left, but they're not going to say that they need the left, right? And that that's the, the argument that a lot of folks, I think, have very uncharitably been making, that I am some, somehow too stupid and too naive, and um, someone accused me of not understanding the law, which I thought, the courts, which I thought was pretty hilarious since of the two You're of lawyer, us, right? I went to law school, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, the reality is, that's why I wanted to have a conversation with Chomsky about organizing a identifiable and therefore powerful and, um, you know, uh, a concerted political block of voters who could meaningfully make demands down the line. The conversation I wanted to have wasn't about 2020 at all, but how to prevent us from being in this exact same scenario four years from now. And part of what's so, I think, frustrating is that if you want to talk about future political strategy, if you want to talk about the long-term effects of climate change, if you... All of these conversations right now are being squashed 
because to, to even speak of these things is perceived as undermining the efforts to get Joe Biden elected. And I feel like personally, I, I, I understand that. And I am saying about 20% of what I actually want to articulate, to be honest, you know, consequently. But it, there are also consequences for us pretending like the Joe Biden um, administration or the Joe Biden campaign is doing more than it is in terms of our long-term ability to organize and keep people's eyes open to what we need to, um, you know, organize people around. You know, I don't want our, uh, I think, a, a reasonable effort to get Joe Biden elected to have the long-term effect of diminishing our ability to advance genuine progressive reforms. And that I, I, I think there's a big difference between Joe Biden running despite leftists or progressives and Joe R Biden running at the expense of the progressives and the progressive movement that we've pushed for the last four years. Joe Biden is out here talking about Medicare, uh, healthcare as a human right, knowing damn well that he does not believe that healthcare is a human right and would veto Medicare for all, he says, even in the middle of a, an unprecedented pandemic. What is our obligation on the left? This is what I was asking them, Chomsky. What is our obligation on the left to pretend he's not saying the kinds of things that are fundamentally um, um, harmful to our broader political goals? What is our responsibility to allow him to, to run ramshot over um, the gains that we've made over the last four years? Is it, you know, is our obligation just to stay quiet, you know, not oppose him? Or do we also have to let him diminish our movement in order to win. I, I, you know, I asked that of Marianne Williamson in another interview, and I think that she had a much better answer and was a much made a much more compelling case for voting, voting for Biden because she recognized those concerns as real. But it was disappointing not to get genuine engagement um, on those issues, not because I'm arguing one way or the other, but I think that a lot of people who are wrestling with whether or not to vote for Biden are making those kinds of assessments and are feeling irritated by the fact that he's still punching left, even as we're expected to fall in line. And that's there's so much outreach going to Republicans and nothing but contempt coming in the way of the progressives who are supposed to be the base, the core, the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Well, not to contradict either uh, you, Brie, or you, Anders, about Noam Chomsky's stance on uh, climate change. But I have in front of me an email that was sent by Noam Chomsky to our friends at the Hard Drive podcast, the Hard Drive being the uh, video game branch of the Hard Times uh, is that you know, Ace Watkins podcast? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is Noam Chomsky famously answers, you know, every email. Mm -hmm. So they emailed him and asked him if they would come on their podcast to talk about Super Mario Brothers three. He said, I wish I could manage the rest of 2020 is so intensively scheduled that I can't add anything more. And it will be a few months before I can think about scheduling beyond. My grandchildren always insisted that I play that video game for hours. I was Luigi, always ended up in a ditch or a lake. So maybe he is concerned about rising lakes. That's all I have. Is he thinking of Mario Kart? Probably. I mean, he's probably thinking of something entirely different. You can end up in a lake if it's one of the 3D ones. In a 2D, your options are much more limited. There's a whole level that takes place in a lake or in the sea in Mario 3. I'm sure he's... It's time to address the Sonic question. How long before <laughs> air, our air bubble expires? <laughs> I now turn to the panel. We have a uh, director of climate research. Um, I don't know. Uh, talking about 2020 never fails to really 
put me in a terrible mood, I think, because, you know, it's a alien versus predator kind of situation. And no matter who wins, we lose. And you can just argue the finer points of whatever happens from here. And I think since we have Brianna on and she has a lot of background, uh, I want to talk about a conversation that happened a lot maybe a year ago, but I haven't heard much of recently, which is... Um, is there any way we cannot ally ourselves with the Democrats electorally in the future? Is there like any leeway to make a third party run that gains any traction in America at all, in your opinion? Well, you know, the People's Party, um, there, there is this effort right now uh, to start working along those lines. And, you know, I don't have an organizer's background. I, you know, much, you know, I regret that. And I, hope to have a lot more organizers and activists on our show because I think we need to talk in very practical terms. That's again, what I wanted to talk to Noam Chomsky about is instead of just everyone saying it's impossible, we don't have the infrastructure to do this right now. Oh gosh. It's like, okay, great. Let's talk about how four years from now we can act so that we're not in this exact same position. Um, I, I don't I don't believe in that kind of an, an nihilism a nihilistic way of thinking that says that just because the way things are the, the way that things are the way they are that we they always have to be this way. I mean, the Republican Party came about because it was a third party challenge, and then we got Lincoln and slavery ended. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I sure, I, but there's there's a middle ground here where there were like semi-successful runs that were gaining tractions by the Socialist Party at the turn of the 20th century, and then legislation passed after that, deliberately making it harder for a third party to run. So I don't know. I don't know any of the details of that, but is are there just too many blocks for that to be a good strategy? No. I think that we all need to stop saying things like, it just can never happen like that in this country. It's just a two-party system. I think that we need to start pushing especially these Democrats who are so contemptuous of the idea to say, okay, if you don't like third parties and you don't like spoilers, I need to hear the next sentence out of your mouth be about ranked choice voting or some other ranked, you know, um, uh, voting system. People always want to hop in with a different alternative to ranked choice whenever I say ranked choice. I don't really care which one, to be honest. Like, but the point of the matter is, you know, get rid of that first past post system. Like I, 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 you know, there, there are reasons why, you know, Democrats are opposed to it. They know that the fear mongering um, of the spoiler effect is one of their most potent tools to keep people in line. I think that we need to look, this is the point I was trying to make to Chomsky. He talked about activism and activism and activism and how electoral politics is in the be all end all. I said, fine. Over the course of the summer, we saw the largest mass movement in American history, the largest number of people in the streets in American history in the Black Lives Matter movement, right? They were, the, the, the claims made by that movement were largely overlapping with the asks made by the Bernie Sanders campaign. They wanted free college. They wanted Medicare for all. These were the demand. They wanted um, uh, to end cash bail. All of these things, 90% of the demands were overlapping. Those demands could have been characterized in a political way and put directly to the Joe Biden campaign, frankly, in much the same way that Ice Cube has put together his list of demands, which were ignored, frankly, um, by the Joe Biden campaign and, you know, pandered to by the Donald Trump campaign. But again, it's reasonable to wonder why a, a racist white ring- winger like Donald Trump is willing to pander in a way that, that Joe Biden isn't even willing to do that, you know? So 
I think that there was a, could have been an enormous amount of power in 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 um, leveraging that mass movement to making electoral demands, especially since there was a lot of like sympathy toward that movement publicly and in, in the press. You know, there's a world in which we get 20,000 black of those protesters and participants in a state like Wisconsin, where Hillary Clinton won by only 20 odd thousand votes to say, hey, we voted. We're, we're registered voters. You, we're prepared she, to vote. You mean in the primary or yeah. she lost by? She, it, it, no, in the, in the general election. Sorry, she, she lost, lost by. Okay, yeah, Sorry, yeah. did I say when? One? Sorry. Yeah. Well, she lost by only 20-odd thousand votes. To say, here's 20-odd thousand committed voters who are registered and ready to go. And we will vote. We want Joe Biden to win. We will vote for Joe Biden, but only under these conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the reason why people take that position and they say, oh, that seems like hostage taking. That seems like privileged or something that you're making these kinds of demands is there's this presumption that if you make those kind of demands and Joe Biden were to concede that he would be making himself more vulnerable in a general election context. But the kind of demands we're talking about, and this is, I think, really, really key, the kinds of demands we're talking about are enormously popular among Republicans as well as Democrats. And so the, 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 the fact that the onus keeps being put on voters to just be quiet about things that would actually make Joe Biden a better candidate and also save lives is really, frankly, I think, disgusting. When I say Joe Biden should listen to the people, it's not because I want him to lose or that I'm trying to sabotage him. When I say people should leverage their votes, it's not to say I want to threaten Joe Biden to that, you know, with a difficult situation that will result in his failure and that I'm voting for Trump. I'm rooting for Trump. It's quite the opposite. It's to try to shine light on the fact that Joe Biden isn't doing the things that would make him a stronger candidate, more equipped to beat Trump, and also actually meeting the needs of millions of people who are facing facing an eviction crisis and on a massive historic levels of unemployment, health care crisis. It, it's, it's absurd that somehow the people who are pointing that fact out and the fact that he hasn't been sufficiently responsive to these needs are the enemy. The onus is on him to rise to the occasion, in my humble opinion. I mean, yeah, I think on the third party question, like, and I say this as someone who often votes for greens and third parties and in safe races, uh, I think the key strategically is really forcing a split in the Democratic Party, which is just going to take a long time. And I think the way you do that is fighting them on their own turf, you know, because there are all these legal barriers. Um, Like one, like this, that's just, if, if the left gets powerful enough, that's just too contradictory, I think, to have, you know, uh, Joe Manchin and AOC in the same party. Like at some point there's going to have to be a split. And what really matters is where the base goes. Um, but I guess to zero in on the the leverage question, uh, when you say like people should um, say, well, yeah, we will vote for Biden if he does X, Y and Z. Do we do that uh, organizationally? Organizationally, like is there some sort of. Um, group that people should be joining that has these demands or, or do, you, do we do that individually on, on social media? Like, how does that leveraging process work? I think it has to be collective. And that's the issue. You know, people are upset of the timing of this. They're like, why are you talking about this now? Well, I've been talking about it since June. Mm-hmm. I've been talking about it, frankly, since April. Um, and like a lot of people, I was frustrated by the speed at which a lot of prominent leftists endorsed Joe Biden, not because they should never endorse Joe Biden, but that that endorsement came with absolutely no conditions. 
you know, what more leverage might the Sunshine Sunrise Movement have had? I'm sorry, I don't know why I always do that. I have some weird <laughs> like was, mental uh, take. Sunshine Movement is my morning <laughs> show. Because I was talking about Mario, um, Super Mario Sunshine. <laughs> game we all love. <laughs> Let's leave it on that. Um, but what, what leverage might they have had if, if you know, if, if Bernie Sanders hadn't already endorsed? You know, mm. what leverage might... Um, the left have had if people like Angela Davis and Noam Chomsky hadn't immediately fallen in line. You know, I don't, I don't know, but I do think, yes, I'm not talking about individuals withholding their vote and saying, you know, know, I'm I'm talking about the fact that there needs to be some collective action. And back in the spring, you know, I'm not an activist. And I know that if I were to start to try to behave as one, there'd be a whole new legion of people saying, who are you to think that you can lead people and you don't, you're not from the community and blah, blah, blah. And I, I respect that. I'm, I'm, I'm not, but I am frustrated by the void that no one has seemed to want to step into that role and start to organize voters in swing states to say, we have the power to demand more than what we're getting and to make the kind of reasonable, common sense, popular demands that can't be derided as somehow, you know, radical or unrealistic the way that a lot of what Bernie advocated for in 2016 was, was characterized, you know, but then later became mainstream, right? As we continue to push and popularize these ideas, we have never had a more sympathetic case. I mean, you know, Jeff Stein at the Washington Post keeps retweeting um, screen grabs from the Reddit unemployment thread. And it's, it's like heartbreaking, you know, like there's a real disconnect between what's going on in this country and, and what you see and hear in the media and I, I frankly, I think it's, I think it's disgusting. I think it's disgusting that someone can, that, that, that the media is willing to talk about how, oh, Donald Trump is a horrible racist because he doesn't care about COVID and it's disproportionately killing black and brown and indigenous people, right? That's one, a lot of one side of their mouth. And also, oh my God, you're just trying, you're, you're just trying to enable Trump by saying those black and brown and indigenous people are screwed, <laughs> Either way, and have been screwed for a really long time, and that the orders of magnitude of which they might be screwed are different. There are meaningful differences, but you aren't interested in their plight outside of this electoral context. And God forbid they want to make demands in exchange for their vote. God forbid you actually try to engage with the fact that there's 40 million people in this country that don't vote that are disproportionately working class and non-white because... Their, their political grievances aren't being heard. And instead, you do these kind of pompous, just get out the vote ads. And why don't you just take 10 minutes of your time? 10 minutes, 10 minutes, they're all repeating for some reason, like it's a talking point. When we know that there's massive voter disenfranchisement, there's enormous lines, people are risking their lives to contract a deadly disease to go and do this thing. I mean, it's just no respect for the vote at the same time that everyone's talking about how vote, how voting is so important, which is it is voting irrelevant. And you shouldn't, you know, as Noam Chomsky is arguing, it's not the be all end all and you have to care about activism or are you a horrible person because you haven't stood in line and voted because it's the be all end all. Like the contradiction is apparent. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I don't know. I kind of can't help thinking, uh, I mean, I guess now we are sort of pushed back into a place where anything that we can do to affect the uh, someone like Biden or just our own government at all has to be these collective, like, bottom-up sorts of things. But mm-hmm. with Bernie, you know, there are things that are, like, built into, say, the primary system that aren't inherently against uh, – 
anyone like like uh, okay so caucuses for example Bernie did really well in and the uh, the primary system is incredibly undemocratic but it's set up in this specific way where you start in Iowa and then you go these through these small states and the explanation I've been given for that I'm not, I'm not smart I don't know history and shit but what I was told was <laughs> that it was um, at one point you know this was so that outsiders could get in the presidential race on a, a an easier track than if everyone voted at the same time so you could have someone come out of the blue and, and actually mount a a, mm. uh, a race against you know some some big hegemonic boss you know presidential candidate or whatever and so with bernie it seemed like an experiment to try to hack the system in that way by using these leftover things that were probably set up for not us you know um is there any is there anything like that left over or is that dream dead? I mean, is there any other avenue to to power for us other than just trying to leverage our damn, you know, vote or uh I don't know, activism? I'm not entirely sure exactly how cynical we should be. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. You know, depending on how I what side of the bed I got up on in the morning. Um I'm I'm like looking at my bed in the corner of my studio apartment and, and <laughs> laughing at the idea that there's even one side that's not pushed up against a wall. <laughs> um, the end of the bed, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, that you know, I, I sometimes I'm like, okay, we came so close, and maybe next time, maybe an AOC can get there um, because she's much more difficult to mount a kind of like specious Bernie Bro style attack at her because of her identity, you know, like sometimes I'm optimistic. Sometimes I think, well, they'll come up with something, you know, to, to, to stop her. If she's a real, if she's a genuine threat and she's going to do what she says she's going to do the way that Bernie was, then they'll figure out a way to stop her. And, and I don't know. I think that regardless, I don't think the cynicism should stop us from making the effort. And, and that's where I come down. I, I don't think that it's useful to say, oh, they're never going to let us do it. And then and therefore what? like make it easy for them? No, I think you constantly have to keep trying every avenue, but that's part of what's so frustrating about these conversations and how, I'm sorry to keep going back to Chomsky, but how they're characterized because, you know, if I say, let's talk about electoral strategies, the response is it has to be activism. And if I talk about activism, it's, well, you know, are you saying you're going to give up on these electoral strategies? I think that you got to do all of them at the same time. And different people are going to focus on different areas given their, uh, you know, expertise and their power and their, you know, their platform and what they're able to do. Um, you know, I, I do think that there is, um, you know, an, a realignment coming down the pike that no one can ignore. Um, I think that we might get someone on the right who is better at Trump better than Trump at cosplaying uh, right-wing populism and who is closer to a Steve Bannon type who might be, we might get worse and worse threats, basically. Um, People who are harder and harder to beat than Donald Trump who are playing, playing that game. The Democratic Party might decide that it has to do more and engage in more kind of left-wing populism in order to fight back because I think that's the only solution. And they might be willing to make some concessions um, to the things, the kind of things that progressives have been asking for in order to counter that threat. At the same time, given the kind of corporate interests at stake, they might just double down. And we have a country where your options are between a Michael Bloomberg type on the left, 
quote unquote left (laughs) as a Democrat. And you have a um, Steve Bannon type on the right. And it's going to put a lot of Americans in a really thorny position. Do I go with the racist who says I should have a $15 minimum wage or a $20 minimum wage? Or do I go with the, 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 the civil, polite, non-racist Democratic Party who wants me to live in a Jeff Bezosian like wage slavery? I, I don't, I hope we don't get there. But regardless, I don't think that we're going to keep going down the path that we're on for very much longer. So something's going to shift. The shift is upon us. Right. And I I mean, I, I know a lot of people right now on the, the left, socialist left, are, are sort of uh, hesitant to talk about presidential politics, the future of it, because it's it's we're still getting over the, the burn, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious about what the prospects there are, because um, if I think if uh, Biden wins, there's going to be there might be a primary challenge. I don't know how successful it would be, but I, I think you know, maybe someone like Nina Turner, uh, that could be very cool and, and maybe, you know, get Has him there to... ever been like a successful primary challenge of an incumbent president or like even anything close? No, there was Kennedy in, in 80, uh, which people blame the uh, 1980 election on. Uh, but in Buchanan in 92, I don't think it's ever really worked, but but I, it could like move him to the left. Uh, but that's if Biden if uh, if Biden wins, if he loses, um, I'm looking at, you know, people like Ben Ray Lujan, Lujan from um, Lujan, sorry, from New Mexico, who's running for mm-hmm. Senate right now, supports Medicare for all. Looks like he's going to win the Senate race. Uh, someone like Paula Jean Swearingen, who is a more of an uphill battle in, in West Virginia. But if mm-hmm. she won, I think that would be huge. She's got a huge political future um, like who. Who do you think kind of the backbench is right now on the left? Uh, people who could one day, be it in four years, be it in 12, uh, run for president? Um, it's it's very difficult. I mean, I think everyone, you, you, you've named some, and I think we all know the, the, the realm of the, the, the squads and the the progressive insurgents that have had victories this year. And we, you know, it's all exciting and I don't know which of them is going to be best positioned to do it. I think there's a lot more that goes into being, having the broad appeal and national platform that enables you to run for president than Mm -hmm. having good politics. As much as I would like it not to be the case, I would like it just to be able to cherry pick from all of these progressives and say, this person is going to catch fire. I mean, I, I have no idea. And I think the, the bigger issue is, is anyone, would anybody be willing to actually challenge Joe Biden, to, to primary Joe Biden? And I think the more willing, the people more willing to do so are the people who are less willing, are less able to have kind of likely political chances, right? Yeah. The people who I mean, want to risk it all are people who don't have as much to risk because they right. probably, you know, didn't have a very good likelihood of doing it, mm-hmm. in, you know, um, in 2028. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, it's just, it's just, it's just conjecture. <laughs> right. And and that's where I like, I, I kind of need to think about this stuff because like, <laughs> you know, four years or of Biden or Trump is really depressing <laughs> for obvious reasons. But, um, I do think though, that like one of the things that is a, a legacy of Bernie and, and your work too, is the fact that a pretty big portion, if not a majority of young people, millennials and Zoomers actually have 
uh, standards now when it comes to who we vote for. It, you know, where you get your money matters. And that was not the case uh, for a lot of kids 20, 30 years ago. What, what you stand for, if you're running on Medicare for all, uh, Green New Deal, those things are actually at the front of mind in, instead of, you know, what your, your personality's like or, or your selfies or and that, that stuff. So I think my hope is in, when it comes to electoral politics anyway, politics anyway is that a lot of young people do actually have standards that, that their parents didn't. And at some point, uh, hopefully before it's too late, um, we'll have someone who's at least a, a social Democrat in the White House. Yeah, I, I guess, well, uh, sorry, go ahead. Your turn. No, no, please. I've been talking <laughs> my behind off. Oh, um, okay. Well, I got this is this is maybe just like a throwaway thing, but um, uh, we've talked a lot about like a uh, cynicism, right? If losing faith in um, maybe the the current two party setup or the uh, impediments to installing a progressive candidate, uh, you know, set you back, and what you think about that, but. You're a socialist. You identify as a socialist. At I what do. point is abandoning electoralism not cynicism anymore and just a strategy switch? Like, is there any is there any point where we're just going to be like, OK, we're making our own communities now and we're just going to do that because the center is falling away <laughs> and we have a higher likelihood of succeeding that way? Like we're going to go off the grid and build build cabin cabins in the desert or <laughs> well i mean there's no post office or... anymore it's happening right now <laughs> that, I mean, look, that took like three weeks and it was just gone <laughs> the, the reason the reason why look I, I i am a i i am i am like a in the, in the world if, the, if life were improv i am a yes ander do you know what i mean like i i generally am like open to any and all things but i also i you know i want to be clear out about the fact that the reason why they call us cosplay socialists and they don't treat us seriously is because we say something like we'll do things like that without, you know, meaning. I mean, like, there's a world where we could do that, right? But that takes just as much organization and collective action as mounting a third party challenge, right? If we really are serious, if socialists are really serious about abandoning the whole system and building our own country and taking over a state and, and and arming up or doing whatever, you know, having an actual rebellion, then then that's a thing that people do, that people have done historically over time. But like, do we mean it? Do you mean it? Yeah. Um, and that's, it's not an easy way out. It's, it's just as difficult and has an enormous amount of other kinds of risks in terms of to life and limb um, as, as, as other kinds of alternatives. So, uh, you know, it's not that I am dismissive of that. Like I, I hear people like Killer Mike who talk about the need, wanting, you know, marginalized groups like black folks to go ahead and arm up and take advantage of their Second Amendment rights because he knows what's coming down the pike. I hear people who, um, you know, talk about doing the thorough thing and just going off into the woods somewhere. Like, I, I, I hear that. You know, it, it's framed as a kind of privilege and is a kind of privilege. I hear the people who say, like, screw it, I'm leaving America. Like, I understand emotionally all of those instincts. Um, but... I look around and my immediate concern is for the, you know, I'm thinking about my family members. I'm thinking of my, you know, my aunts and cousins and people in in Cleveland who are not going to be helped by me going off into the, <laughs> the woods uh -huh. somewhere, you know, um, and who aren't going anywhere, who are like in dialysis centers and need medical treatment. And that, that kind of thing is an, an option. So look, 88% of Democrats support Medicare for all. 
I, I'm tired of talking about it like it's some fringe crazy thing that only people in in, in coonskin hats can like be for. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like eighty eight percent of Democrats support Medicare for all. Eighty eight percent of Democrats and a slim majority of Republicans. Like we just need to be talking about that. And and that 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 emerged in the last four years. That wasn't the case in twenty sixteen. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what is so it's so angry making for me right now in this moment is that even if I say nothing about Joe Biden, if I tweet Medicare for all, there are a bunch of people in my mentions who say this is hurting Biden. Right. We'll see <laughs> that. If, that's... Me, if me tweeting a basic truth about a fundamental human right that every American, should, every person living in this country should have hurts Joe Biden, that's an indictment of your candidate, not of me or my Twitter habit. I, uh, I think that you're right, that we should continue to be pushing Joe Biden on this sort of stuff. And the fact that we have. And like the things that we're talking about today are within the you know realm of the Overton window. Window are a complete exam, a perfectly good example of why you need to continue to like leverage your vote and things like that. I mean, I think about this a lot because honestly, that Bernie money that I got at the beginning of this year changed my life. And you know, maybe he wasn't president or whatever, but like that wouldn't have happened if not for this entire movement. Yeah. Um, so even the you know even in, in in defeat I mean we're still this is still a, a direction to be pushing in, and so it seems like to me you know a, a lot of this uh, discourse this battle you're engaged in is taking place online with uh, you know I mean literally like with people in the replies and stuff and I I guess I'm also you know a pretty embattled person on the internet probably not at, at your level at all because I was didn't stand for something that challenged that many people but my question I guess from one uh, you know fucking online person to another is that do you think that that what they're doing what the the people that oppose us are doing in the realm of like online politics and uh, discourse in that specific arena is effective at shutting us down because they're trying to shut down this very real thing that you were proposing that will get back some of the ill-gotten gains on some level if we can organize to leverage against Biden, right? And that's that's why they're so pissed off about this. Um, yeah. What do you think? I mean, you know, what do we what are we up against? in terms of this like gamified realm of, uh, you know, d- journalism that is Twitter. Well, I think, I look, I think, I think that some people are just, you know, afraid and are acting in good faith. Um, and they're afraid, like, like I said, we, we, we might release, we're debating whether to release, you know, which of the premium episodes to release, but we had this um, wonderful conversation with Marianne Williamson the week before Chomsky, where we basically presented her with the same questions. And she answered in a way that was really empathetic and humble and in a way that acknowledged how terrible the situation is. And she committed to fighting after November, starting November 4th or whenever we find out the results of the election um, to to make sure that we're not in the same place four years from now. And she has participated in the People's Party movement and, you know, you know, who knows how much she's going to be engaged in that or what that will bear out. And we can have skepticism about that and that's fine, but at least she acknowledged the problem. Right. And so we were able to have a much more substantive and interesting and meaningful and compassionate discussion. One, which frankly, I think will convince a lot of people to vote for Biden. I think that she played the role well. Right. Um, I, and I, and I want to honor, I want to respect People's fear, like, it's scary. Donald Trump is scary. He's done terrible things. He will do more terrible things. He has fascistic qualities. Like, I, I, I 
am accused of denying that reality. And that's not it at all. All I'm asking is to recognize the extent to which a lot of people are already living under what feels just as terrifying. Um, but ha- th- those harms are just kind of like gab- grandfathered into the status quo. We've just collectively decided not to care about them anymore. I'm saying we could fix both. We could get Trump out of office and fix both. And you would be more able to get Trump out of office if you attended to the needs of the people who have had longstanding grievances because they would come out in bigger numbers and vote for Joe Biden. So I, I want to do honor... Sorry, that was all to say. I, I want to honor that people are afraid for real reasons and that there are some people who are making good faith criticisms. And I would say to those people that I, I, I don't, this isn't about selfishness. This isn't about like kind of privilege, like um, the privilege of wanting just to articulate one's political views and to stand out and all of that kind of stuff. This is about having a fundamental belief in our collective power despite the Twitter hordes and all the bad faith actors and all these politicians and pundits pretending like we don't have it and pretending that our vote is insignificant when they, when it suits them and all powerful when it suits them. Our vote is what it is. Our vote is what we make of it is, is my only basic point and that we should be thinking strategically about how to use our power as voting blocks. I mean, I was just listening to this, um, uh, uh, some excerpts from Malcolm X, including his ballot, ballot and the, the bullet speech, ballot or the bullet speech, in which he diagnoses this exact problem, right? And the point that he makes is that, you know, majorities of Black voters were voting for Democrats at a time in which Democrats controlled like three quarters of government, right? We, they, were, they were apparently dom- dominant in Congress and had the presidency. And his point was like, if you are overwhelmingly committing your vote to a party that has all the power and is still not able to deliver on your needs, you're a fool. What are you doing? It's time to start to look at what Republicans are offering and say that my vote is up for offer for whoever's willing to deliver. And obviously the Republican Party doesn't deliver anything for us at all. But the fact of committing your vote a priori, regardless of what the Democratic Party offers, means that you, 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 just, you just have no leverage. And so it's not to say vote Republican. It's to say that you have to get something in exchange for voting a Democrat. And I cannot believe that that is somehow a controversial proposition. Yeah, I feel like I remember like at the beginning of the primary, even before, you know, everyone had been weeded out or whatever, there were people running around online just saying, will you commit to vote blue no matter who, you know, from now on as a way of just breaking the concept of leverage in a really sad kind of uh, pushover sort of way. Um, now door knocking people said that to us too. Yeah, I was like, what do you mean? It's crazy. Like you, you would go and canvas for Bernie, and you talk to this old couple, and they'd go, "Oh, I do like him. If he loses, will you vote for Joe <laughs> Biden?" You'd be like, "That? Why are you even thinking about that right. now? It doesn't make any sense also, for this is, decision." Is that a binding contract? If I just tell you, like we were just lying to yeah, people, we go, "Yeah, sure, go for great." What you is know? this parchment made out of? Skin? Are you a wizard? <laughs> what the fuck is happening? I definitely said, "Oh, well, we're we're still on the same side." To a bunch of. Uh, more supporters and people who I absolutely did not believe that about. <laughs> yeah, we just um, lied to people. My, yeah. I, my, I've gamed this out a million times in my head, and it's like we're in an impossible kind of situation. But I took where I'm at, and this is mostly a joke, but maybe serious, is that I maybe. I mean, I live in New York, so it doesn't matter. But I think if you live in a swing state, maybe the move is like vote for him, but tell people you didn't, because otherwise, you know, if you tell people. <laughs> 
then they you give up the leverage. It doesn't matter because it's an individual thing, yeah, not a collective it's, it's thing. One, yeah. But I am kind of curious about like, you know, we're talking <laughs> about um, sort of discrete communities was mm-hmm. a term and how the Democratic Party has been sort of taking their votes for granted. And it's the reason they have the power that they do have. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the like bludgeons against getting the Democratic Party to have a more redistributive uh, platform or just, you know, challenging incumbents uh, in the Democratic Party from the left, which is DSA has done by running people of color. The bludgeon against that has been this is a white thing. Um, you know, it doesn't matter. I know you had Jabari Brisport mm-hmm. on uh, on your show and and one of the most absurd uh it, you know, a lot of absurd statements coming from Lori Cumbo, who is uh, his city council woman mm-hmm. who's, you know, saying that he's the puppet of white socialists as if he doesn't yeah, she's have in my own. boyfriend's district. I'm trying to convince him to run against her. Oh, that would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's so stupid, guys. <laughs> it's so stupid. Look, part of the reason, like, uh, you know, the part of the reason I keep bringing up black folks is one, because I'm black, but two, um, because that, that that is a voting block that has been so consistent and that it already is like a natural block, right? Like it's a natural block. And because the Democratic Party, in the absence of actually delivering material goods for its constituents, has defaulted to identity as the thing that distinguishes it from the Republicans, right? The Democratic, the Democratic Party is the corporate party that is nice to black people and gay people and immigrants. And the Republican Party is the corporate party who isn't. Right. And you know, that's a meaningful difference. I, 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 I like black people and gay people and immigrants, and I would prefer to belong to the party that does that. Right. But like that shouldn't get to a place where it becomes a shield or um, an excuse for their failure to deliver on the material things that black people and gay people and immigrants actually need. Right. Um, so, you know, B- Bernie is a is a is a socialist who only cares about white people, except that Bernie was the only one with a plan to end homelessness. Homeless people are, you know, we all understand are disproportionately from marginalized groups. No group experiences homelessness at the same rate as trans people like go down the list. Right. Medicare for all. It's a universal program. And uh, it's, you know, just white people who apparently want this or something because it's universal. And, and that's stupid. Well, you know, Medicare for all covered transition surgery, you know, uh, you know, gender affirmation surgery, Medicare for all covered mental health care, Medicare for all um, covered, you know, covers everyone. And everyone understands the maternal mortality gap becomes a a talking point, right, for Democrats. Oh, Black women's health, we care so much. Okay, well, you want to talk about Serena Williams and how she almost died, and you want to kind of make affluent Blacks the face of this thing, when the reality is um, Black women's health groups have made it clear that the number one driver of the Black maternal health gap is that black women are disproportionately on um, Medicaid and that doctors are discriminating against them because they're on Medicaid <laughs> yeah. um, and they're getting lower. Th- and also that they are tend to have to change their housing circumstances multiple times during their pregnancy because they're home insecure and they tend to have to work longer into their pregnancies because they don't make us up enough money and don't have paid leave and on and on and on. So like, you know, it, it is going to be, yes, I think, to answer your question, I'm sorry, I keep going off on these rants, but right. to answer your question, the point of the matter is that the Democratic Party has used identity as a shield. Mm-hmm. And there's an enormous amount of power to having candidates who they can't just write off as kind of white Bernie bros because they are not white Bernie bros. They're black and queer and all these other kinds of things. 
Um, and I don't know what the Democratic Party is going to do about that. They still called me and Nina Turner white Bernie bros. They said they treat us like we're somehow not representative of black people. They said I belong to the island of misfit black girls. A mm. white Biden surrogate Jason told Johnson, Nina yeah. Turner on television that she didn't have the right to reference Martin Luther King. But she did. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's outrageous. But like, I think that the people are increasingly seeing the the, the, the sleight of hand here. Yeah. And they're going to have to come up with a new game, a new a, a new game plan. But the fact that Democrats have empowered identity in this way, right? They have said that identity is the be all end all and you got to trust black women and all this kind of stuff. It's an opportunity for the left in a lot of ways because they have boxed themselves in. So that now when an AOC comes along or a Cory Bush comes along, you know, what are you going to do? You got to trust either you got to trust black women or you got to burn all your old signs and make a bunch of new ones. Well, see, here's the thing about that, though. I mean, I'm optimistic as well. And I think that definitely people of color and people with Jack any box are going to do better in this specific space for this reason. But the thing is, cynicism doesn't play by like fair rules. So like with Bernie, for example, at first he was, uh, you know, he was he didn't have any experience. And the next time around, it was like, we need fresh blood. Right. So the spin thing recontextualizes (laughs) any situation. And with someone like an AOC running for president or just anyone from like the squad who's a woman of color or whatever, I predict, at least I'm going to make a call here. I don't know shit, but uh, I think that when someone like that runs in any race that's going to really, really threaten anything, the, the argument gets turned around to, oh, America's too racist to run that person, so right. they can't be the candidate. Yeah. Because- well, yeah. Bernie supposedly said. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah. I, I think that that's right. And then I think that, but, but I think that, well, here's another way to here's another uh, strategy that they might use, in which I feel like is what's happening. The reason why I started writing about identity politics in 2017 is because back in 2017, it became very clear that Kamala Harris is being positioned as the next Democratic candidate for president. It was evident back then, uh, and the, the the way the press was covering her um, after she won um, her Senate seat was it, it was just as clear as day. It was very explicit. And it became clear to me that what they were going to do was get a perfectly diverse candidate um, that would make it very difficult for a white socialist to succeed. Um, And also one that would be able to at least go toe to toe with any non-white socialists that were going to come down the pike. So what we're seeing now, if if we're looking at 2024 and Joe Biden does end up being a one term president and Kamala Harris is the rightful heir, it's going to be. The, the advantages that AFC, someone like AOC has in terms of her identity are basically canceled out with a Kamala Harris. And then it becomes like this hierarchy battle of which identity groups matter more than the others. And for longstanding historical reasons and that are weird and awkward, you know, there is a racial, the, the racial hierarchy battle says that black trumps Latino <laughs> like in these, in these weird games. Latinos, uh, they out, they're, they're, they're it's like a more, rock, paper, scissors or something. You need Native American. They're, well, they're, they're more. The ace they're, in the hole. Well, unfortunately, because, well, there's, there's like all multiple things going on here, right? So there's more Latinos than black Americans, right? There's more, but black Americans are the more reliable voting block, right? So there's power in that. Um, in a way that there isn't necessarily in to a Latino who doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily going to get the Latino vote. Latinos you know? so, don't even all identify as the same thing. Tons of us right. are white and all sorts of other stuff. Think of them. Right. It's not, not even. I mean, it's literally not a like r- racial categorization. People go by you know 
nationalities and stuff. So yeah, they don't work from a diagnostic analytical point of view. No one can really pin down who are these people voting for. And then also there isn't like a, I mean, you're not cordoned off into a specific group like black people historically in America, you know? Right. Right. And then you have the whole Biden discourse sort of uh, who apparently is politically black. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Way way blacker than me. Yeah. Yeah, So I think that what you're going to see is like people arguing, well, Kamala Harris is, the writer person of color to be in that position. Our first woman president should be this black and South Asian woman and not this Latino woman for reasons. Yeah. And you're going to, you're, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see people arguing that AOC is racist and white and making specious accusations about her white boyfriend. I, like, I, I don't, I don't doubt how, how low they'll go. Yeah. They're going to be like, like uh, Kamala, 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 they will go. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to do a really bad joke. Kamala is a POC and a COP, so think about that. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I feel to edit that out. <laughs> that, that one's for the spelling freaks. She's, we see you. She's another, she's blue as you well. Nasty. I don't know. Right, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. It's dark times, but it's not dark times. Because look, I they wouldn't be as, I think, angry and... Um, you know, reactionary to a simple little podcast doing an interview with uh, Noam Chomsky <laughs> if they didn't understand that there was a certain amount of power in the discourse. And right. look, it was a it's a premium episode that was behind a pay, paywall that nobody would have known about if they hadn't made it gone viral. Right. So mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's this there's this accusation of, you know, convincing people not to vote for Biden and depressing the vote and encouraging apathy and all this stuff. But, you know, like it wouldn't have even been a thing if they hadn't made it a thing. But I think the fact that it was so controversial, you know, it speaks to a a conversation that people want to have and it's not being had. And it speaks to, I think, a real need for people, for, for progressives to hear that the things that they're fighting for aren't irrelevant just because Joe Biden is the nominee. And we should be able to live in both worlds where we don't want Trump to win and where we also want a better world. And the people who try to make it an either or and say Joe Biden's win has to come at the expense of the futures and the you know, ability to survive of you know, marginalized working class, disproportionately black and brown people are not our allies. You know, it is not a trade-off, and anyone trying to pretend that it is, it, it, it is is the enemy of exactly those groups that Democrats say they're trying to protect. Right. Yeah, I just want to say briefly, like the one of the things that's kind of shocked me, honestly, has been the way that the legacy, I guess, of Shirley Chisholm has just totally been like co-opted and and Kamala Harris launched her campaign by using the same color as the, Mm -hmm. uh, like the, the yellow and the the blue as, as Shirley Chisholm's campaign in 72. And uh, I'm not a Chisholm expert, but you can look back and it's pretty clear that she was like a staunch anti-imperialist. She wanted us um, out of Vietnam and she wanted to do, you know, something we talked about on a previous episode, which is defense conversion, spend that money on the social welfare state. Um, so like at some level, these people know what they're doing, you know, and it is totally cynical. And I think we should be unafraid of, of pointing it out. Um, yeah. And that's, 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. I was I was very frustrated um, by you know Kamala the Kamala Harris campaign's choice to appropriate religious um, <laughs> yeah. as a as a as a symbol. I I wrote about uh, um, Harris so much as a journalist be- because it's the playbook was just so obvious of how twenty twenty was going to go. And frankly, I thought that she was going to be more successful. I thought Kamala yeah. Harris it was going to be Kamala Harris versus Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders was going to have to make the argument for why people should vote for him over a black woman. I yeah. mean, that, that was going to be the biggest challenge, and by dint of her own lack of charisma um, and political integrity, Kamala Harris wasn't able to secure a single vote. Um, but she fails up because the system un- also understands the power, her represent- representational power, and they're going to put her in a position to you weaponize her. I, I frankly, I think weaponize her identity down the line against a diverse slate of um, progressive candidates that are coming down the pike. And, mm-hmm. It's it's terrifying, but I'm so so heartened that there is such a deep bench of diverse progressives. Because when you're talking about actual working class people, um, when you're talking to actual working class people, the benefits of a progressive um, political approach are obvious, and it doesn't take a lot of persuasion. And it's not a surprise to me that people like Cory Bush are coming up through the ranks. And I think we're going to see a lot more of them. And that's the, that's the standoff I want to see. Right. I want to see someone like Kamala look someone like Cori Bush in the eye and try to tell her that she's not a real black woman or that she isn't entitled to want more for her community or mm-hmm. that she owes the Democratic Party her vote, even as she, a you know Ferguson protester and nurse, um, sees the kind of devastation that Democratic Party politics have played on her community in Democratic districts in right. democratic states, in democratic cities, um, which is a Trump po- talking point, but like a lot of Trump talking points has this like sick grain of truth in it. Um, mm-hmm. Is that wrong about everything? I mean, he freaking won, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we should probably wind this down here. Uh, I'll kind of edit around this in case we need to, but does anybody have any like last kind of questions or topics we want to go over? What's your uh, favorite Twitter account? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the best poster of all time is Jabuki Young, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, we know Jabuki. Yeah, friend of the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I would say I've been on Twitter a really long time. I was like a 300 follower account until like two years ago. So I remember the people who were kind of with me in the trenches when there was nobody else around and I was anonymous and I would like to shout out, this is an account called London at mind for GD mind for like God, but without the O. Okay. And I have no idea who they are. I don't really know what their gender identity is. I don't know anything about them. All I know is that they've been right there <laughs> fighting <laughs> these battles and have been like a con- consistently good politics for a really long time. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to elevate that small, 541 follower account. Nice. Cool. This has been Paw Damn Shoutouts. <laughs> I like it. No, those are the best accounts when you literally don't even know what, like, it's just a cartoon for an avatar or something. Yep. And you're like, you're a genius. Like that squirrel. <laughs> I love that squirrel. And I don't know who it is. <laughs> um, yeah, Zay Squirrel or whatever the hell. I don't know. Yeah. All right, Bree. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Please let our listeners know where they can find uh, the new podcast, where they can follow you, all that sort of stuff. Read your stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I strongly recommend, <coughs> excuse me, I strongly recommend um, 
following Bad Faith Podcast. Uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast. You can find us um, on Twitter at uh, badfaithpod, also on Instagram at badfaithpod. I'm at Joy on Twitter. I don't know what Virgil's handle is. Virgil is at Virgil Texas on <laughs> Twitter. Um, and I think that it's, we're really working hard. Virgil jokes, you know, I knew we were going to have a successful podcast, but having a good podcast was an accident. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but I do think I, I really cared about it being a, a quality podcast and really having these good faith conversations and substantive conversations in a trusted environment where people aren't afraid to talk about the fact that they don't necessarily know the answers um, and for that not to be an indictment of your willingness to, you know, pursue those answers. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Or to have these kind of political instincts. And I think of it as a, a safe space to work out some of these difficult thorny issues on the left. And I hope that you guys kind of join us there. Yeah. All right. And if you want to hear that controversial Chomsky content, you got to sign up for the only Chomsky <laughs> thing, the Patreon. Only content. Chomsky fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what you were referring to. Uh-huh. Um, all right. Uh, you can continue to, to support our show by signing up for our Patreon on patreon.com slash poddamnamerica. For our bonus episodes, you can give us a good review on iTunes to counteract all the people that hate me on the internet. It helps our podcast. <laughs> uh, we have merch for sale i'm at feral jokes um, other podcast is why you mad alex anders go ahead at anders um, lee here on twitter uh my other job is on redacted tonight which you can watch on portable.tv and a uh, couple good things to plug alex was mentioning earlier like what are you know what's the future we're gonna start a commune and uh, there is some cool stuff happening in jackson mississippi that i wanted to just give a shout out to cooperation <laughs> jackson uh, you can donate to them, um, become a sustainer. And then also the, the woman I mentioned, Paula Jean Swearingen, who I think in, you know, at least in my in my uh, fantasies that keep me sane, uh, could be one of our next presidents, is running for Senate right now. And this is a, a, a really crucial race. If she won, it would be huge. Uh, even if she comes close, that would be a, a good deal, too. Um, and she needs money. She also needs phone bankers. So if you have some time over the next couple of weeks, please go to polygene.com, sign up for some phone banking. Uh, you can, again, support our show if you want to get access to those juicy episodes about what if Superman landed in the Soviet Union and they made a terrible <laughs> movie about it. For yep. what had to be at least a hundred minutes of recording, because that is it was a lot longer than we thought. It was longer uh, than the movie itself. Yeah. Yeah. As always. Um <laughs> Uh, check out my new podcast, Theater of Delights, if you enjoy talks of elections or if Clifford was real and evil. Um, so check out that also on iTunes.com. And that's it for me for right now. Um, all right. And I will play us out with uh, some listener music, which I'll come back in and record a little bumper for. Thank you for listening to the show and sending us your bands and stuff. I'll put up uh, everyone's stuff. So keep e- emailing us music at poddamnamerica at gmail.com. It's finished. Finished. It's finished. All right. <laughs> this song is called Fleeting by Kid ESP. 